Welcome back to Overdue. I'm Mrs. Watts, your NX librarian. And I'm Coach Hill, your main building librarian. In today's episode, we stick to the facts. So I am here to talk about Killers of the Flower Moon um, by David Gran. And this is one of our Battle of the Books yep. reads. Um, I have got to be honest, I was not so sure about it. Like, I'm a very much a cover person, which is surface level, I'm completely aware. But it, it it's hard to appreciate from the cover for me because it's very antiquated, in my opinion. But Like the picture, you mean? Yeah. It's kind of got that, those like sepia tones to it. Right. It, and maybe because it looks like something that would have been written like 20, 30, 40 years okay. ago. But it is an incredible book. So Killers of the Flower Moon, um, it is about the murders of the Osage people. Um, and they had been stripped of their territory in Kansas originally and ended up taking on or ended up migrating to this rocky soil, rocky land that th- that they thought white settlers would not be interested in. Um, and so come to find out they under, underground is oil that ends up making their tribe very wealthy. And so it opens up on one, one family, one girl in particular, um, Molly, and I forgot her last name, Molly and her husband, Ernest. And, one of her sisters has passed away from, they call it like a wasting disease. And then it, it actually centers on her other sister, Anna, who um, shows up like intoxicated and she gets her sorted out. And then she's sending her sister back home, but her sister turns up dead a week later, along with another man from their, the Osage tribe. Um, within like a 24 hour period, they find these two dead members and so um it kind of starts this investigation and it at this day and age this time there isn't a very systematic legal system they've just got what they call lawmen and it's basically anyone who can wield a weapon pretty well and power in in a place of power and so um the investigation of these murders is how it opens up and then it gives you some background into the Osage people and how they moved from one land to another and acquired this incredible wealth, which um, they did say one account said it would rival that of even the gold rush put together. So um, there's obviously just this threat on these people because of their wealth, wealth. And it really talks about how this was the, I don't want to say the beginning of the FBI, but these were the, um, beginning investigations for the FBI. And so this is the story of, of these, this people group and um, really how they were pushed around and onto something that was beneficial for the people. And then that is threatened again with their lives. So mm. killers of the firemen. Um, I don't want to really say exactly how it ends because it is okay. twist. It is twisted. Um, it's written as narrative nonfiction. I mean, it reads like a story. And so you've had a couple of those lately. Yeah. But the ending or the the killer, the mastermind, I, I should say, is so twisted. It's crazy. Um, 
but it was a great, great book. Good. Um, I can't wait for some of our students to read about it and or to read it and for us to be able to talk about it with them. So I'm really looking forward to that conversation. Um, and yeah, it was just really well done. Really well done. Um, tell me what you were reading. I had read also from the VSBA list, also nonfiction. I had read Revolution in Our Time, uh, The Black Panther Party's Promise to the People mm-hmm. by Kekla Magoon. Um, this was, I mean, it, it was, it's kind of as it sounds, it's, it's really kind of the history of the black Panther party, um, written specifically for a younger audience. The, the language Mm -hmm. was very informative, but, but very accessible. Mm -hmm. Um, it wasn't, sometimes you read nonfiction and it just feels so academic. Um, not that this book lacked any level of academia. I mean, there were lists of sources and it's filled with, uh, primary sources and, indices in the back, timelines of events. I mean, it was, it, it has all the information in it, but I actually really enjoyed, I actually learned a lot, mm-hmm. um, you know, about, about the Black Panthers. Uh, I knew the name, the Black Panthers. I knew um, that that was a prominently a thing during kind of the civil rights movement of the sixties and seventies. Um, and that's probably, if I'm being totally honest, the extent of my knowledge, mm-hmm. if I'm also being honest, which I try to be, um, my image of the Black Panther Party was in contrast to maybe uh, the teachings of Martin Luther King Jr., specifically in the sense of violence, whereas sure. uh, I, I was under the impression uh, that Martin Luther King Jr.'s kind of this passive uh, breaking the law almost, but mm-hmm. or, or maybe indeed breaking the law, but in kind of this passive way. Um, and I had thought that the Black Panthers part, Black Panther Party was much more uh, aggressive. Um, you know, in my head, I have pictures of, of, of guys with guns and stuff. Sure. And so what I ended up learning is that uh, the Black Panther Party actually uh, was dedicated to making sure that they were following the law to the T. Oh, wow. Um, and so one of their early practices was called policing the police, um, where if if they felt like a member of their community uh, was being pulled over or something, it was about to be uh, uh, discriminated against. Uh, and then the actions of the police would kind of follow that, that they would just kind of stand by. They were armed, but they weren't instigating any violence or initiating any violence. They were just there to be witness uh, and make sure that, that if, if violence, if it did come to violence, that they were ready to act. Um, but yeah, that was that was uh, not an eye opener for me, but it was just something Absolutely. that I didn't know that the whole like premise was to do everything according to the law, mm-hmm. um, almost to highlight uh, how the law was and is being unequally applied to the American people. That's kind of the message that resonates throughout the book from before the Black Panther Party to during the Black Panther Party. And then at the very end, there's a couple of chapters of post-Black Panther Party. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that the overall theme is that, you know, we have laws in the, in the we have a justice system in the country and how uh, they don't represent everybody equally. I would say that that's the overall theme. It so, sounds very similar to like an overarching theme in what I read too. Sure. Yeah. I mean, with that people group, right. but yeah. Um. I also learned that the Black Panther Party, uh, one of their main initiatives were like social initiatives. They would they had free food for their communities, transportation. They had the the you know the policing the police stuff too. But that was 
I don't want to say it wasn't a focus, but it was more about uplifting their communities than than bringing bringing something else down. Sure. I guess maybe. Mm-hmm. And so they're doing all this work to again uh, strengthen and uplift their communities. They had, they had their own schools, um, and it got to the point that the U.S. government had operations to infiltrate the Black Panther Party and kind of break them up within and, and kind of create kind of this, this dissonance between, between the members and between the leaders. And it worked. Um, again, there's, there's primary sources in the book showing the official letters and whatnot. It was called Cointel pro was the operation. Um, and then, then they kind of took them down from within because they saw them as such a large threat. And so then the point is made, like, what was the threat? What was the threat? Mm-hmm. Because it wasn't violence, at least not. They would. They were willing. They were more than willing to defend. Right. So I don't want to mischaracterize. Which that. aren't you know, we all? They, they were given arms training and whatnot before they were allowed to carry guns. But those they were that with the intent of in a defensive manner, not an offensive manner. Mm-hmm. Um, but the point again is made: is what was what was the big threat to the U.S. government? Uh, and and. The only one that that seems to kind of come from that is the threat that their skin's a different color. Um, and again, I, I learned a lot in this book, and it's you know I'm I'm not a young adult, uh, but you know the the language wasn't too simple for me. I learned plenty. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a lot of parallels between that time period and this time period in terms of things you see in the news. Um, and that point was kind of also made that that you know it's. If things have changed, but things haven't changed. Right. It makes you wonder, like, when are we going to figure it out? Yeah. I mean, that's listening to you speak about that. It just makes me feel like we're in a unique position as librarians to bring materials like this to our yeah. students and hopefully and so change. The, 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 the point's also made in the book that um, here's the actions that um, – black people in the black community were taking for these reasons. And then here was the response from the, from the white community. Um, I don't, and I don't think that it was necessarily to make the point of it, I, th- I think the point of that was again, to highlight the inequity of the application of the law, but also to say, you know, when you see something on the news or read about something in the paper or online um, that, and, and you think, why would people do that? Black or otherwise. Uh, if you don't have the same perspective of those people, then, then of course you're not going to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, it reminded me of the last book I read or a couple books ago when I read American Dirt and there was a lot of crit- criticism about the author telling kind of an, a non-authentic story. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I read then too was like, look, you know, even if you're, even if your argument here is like, well, at least the story is written, um, to, so people can be exposed to it. Right. It's not authentic. And if you don't have those authentic experiences, then you're just going to have to trust the people that do. Sure. Uh, and I kind of was feeling that again as I was reading this book because these yeah. are not perspectives that I have. Right. Um, and that kind of kept, I kind of kept hearing that in my head. Like, right. you know, you have to trust the people that do have those perspectives because you just don't. And that's okay. But again, that's how you learn to right. empathize and to to be more worldly and, 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 and whatnot. So a lot of good information, well-written, mm-hmm. uh, heavily researched. Uh, I think in yeah. the author's note, she said she was researching for like 10 years. That's incredible. Um, 
but then taking all of that heavy research and putting it into a really accessible format, again, filled with a lot of uh, documents and primary sources and stuff, just uh, I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. Really? I'm not a huge nonfiction guy. When we were right. splitting up the VSBA list, I like I knew I was going to have to take some nonfiction. Um, frankly, all the other everything else, I hadn't really looked at what the offerings were, but this was kind of the only one left, and so I grabbed it mm-hmm. uh, to try to do my fair share. Right. Uh, and I'm glad I'm glad it, that it landed on me because mm-hmm. I I really learned a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I learned more than I've learned about a single topic uh, in a while. Yeah. So I'm appreciative of that. Me too. Um, you know, we talked about there being so much nonfiction on the Volunteer State Book Award list this year. Yeah. And as we're reading these books, I feel like I get it. Yeah. You know, I understand why. And I'm grateful that they chose the way they did right. because it, it it has been so enlightening. Yeah. The book to me, like I said, was very much just uh, here's a perspective that I think there were two points. Here's a perspective that you don't have. Mm-hmm. And also, um, you know, if you're if your relatives uh, are, are have lived through this, here's maybe some some information on that that you haven't heard yet. Uh, she made the point in the author's notes about how when you're younger, people always tell you, uh, you know, wait till you're older or something like that. And that's just not that's not something that the Black Party believed in, or excuse mm-hmm. me, the Black Panthers believed in, uh, Black Panther Party. Um, you know, the it said at the very end that the median age of a Black Panther member was 19. Wow. It was a youth movement. Of course, there were adults and whatnot, but it was a youth movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and the author author argues that it should that that's that's the way to do it. Yeah. So we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we will talk about what we're reading next. Next, excuse me. But first, once again, uh, we've got a book preview from a White House high school student. Hi, my name is Corbin Gold and I'll be reading Rebel Soul by Axie O. This book is about a boy named Jay Wan who gets recruited in the most lucrative weapons development site in Neo Soul. The mission gets complicated when he meets Terra, who is a test subject for the Super Soldier Project. She is trained to pilot a god machine, which is a human pilot and robot for war. I'll be reading a passage from Chapter 8. It's cold in the lighthouse. A breeze whistles through the cracks in the mortar like a thin scream. I've never been the, I've never been near the ocean reality, but the clinging soul of the air stings as it hits my skin. Leaning forward out of the cockpit, I see my GM has burst through the rubber wall of the lighthouse. The front half of its body jammed against the crumbling spiral staircase. Gripping the metal handlebar situated right outside the cockpit, placed on the GM to help the pilot maneuver in and out of the machine. I jump feet first onto the nearest staircase landing. A few chunks of cement fall from the stairs, crashing into the floor below. Inside the GM, I've been wearing my school uniform, but sometime between leaving the cockpit and landing on the stairs, maybe in the air as I jumped, the simulation changed my outfit into a standard soldier's uniform, black with one red armband. I also have a handgun tucked away and a holster attached to a gun belt worn across my chest. I take the stairs three steps at a time, feeling winded by the eighth landing. Even if this is a simulation, I'm surprised I haven't yet run into any enemy soldiers. Protecting perimeter. The thirteenth landing ends at a door, the shadowed light of the lantern room seeping through the cracks. I slowly turn the doorknob, press the toe of my boot against the wood, and ease it open. I raise my gun, I'm here to defuse a bomb, but it's like a guard within the room. The room is dark, 
the only source of light, the lighthouse lantern beam that slowly sweeps the gray blue ocean waters, searching for imaginary ships in the night. I wonder how many hours we spent in the simulation. Time moves differently here. What could seem like hours in here could be minutes in the real. It's how soldiers get chained so quickly and that at such a young age. We spend so much fake time training in simulations to die in a moment in the real. Something flickers to my right. Sila? She stands behind the bars of a holographic cage, watching me, her eyes wide and dull. Save me, she says, her voice sounding electronic and hollow. Save me. I flick on the mic in my ear, attached to my comm. I found the hostage, I see, dryly. Good, Alex responds. What about the explosive? I peer around the room. It's hard to see anything. There are deep shadows in the corners where the beam of the lighthouse fails to reach. It's not here. It has to be. The mission hasn't ended yet. Are you sure you checked all the rooms? I look around. There are no other rooms other than this one. And the empty main chamber my gym crashed into. But maybe there's something hidden with the seal in the cage. No, I say. One sec. I'm drawn to the side as my body hurdles into mine. A fist connecting beneath my rib cage, knocking the breath out of me. The gun slides across the floor, hitting the side of Sila's holographic prison. My assailant, his face hidden behind the shield of a pilot's helmet, is smaller than me, the top of his head reaching a little past my soldiers. shoulders. Still, he's got a powerful punch that takes all my strength, bolstered by adrenaline, to push him off. He veers into a wall, his head banging against the hard cement. He stumbles backward, raising his gloved hands to the base of the helmet. I rush to seal a static cage, grabbing my gun from the floor and twisting to shoot. The globe of the helmet rocks upon the floor, revealing the face of my attacker. I lower my gun. Lee J1? Alex shouts on the calm. What's happening? I watch the girl cocks her head to the side, as if listening to Alex's voice. There's no possible way she can hear him. It's you, I say. I've seen her before, last night at the concert. She's been staring at the stage as Sila sang the last words of her song. Even if the moment in the lighthouse is simulated, yesterday night was real. I remember the way the police droids tumble off the grid and took her away. Who is she? Lee J1, Alex shouts again. I squint at the pain in my ear. Did you find the bomb? There's a girl. That's nice, he growls. Is she hostile? I'm about to answer when the girl lifts her hands to her collar. She wears a black jumpsuit that zips to her throat. Her face remains expressionless as she lowers the metal zipper. I swallow, my hand tightening on the gun. Why is she? Blue and red wires peeps out of the collar of her suit. It's on her, I say to Macomb. The bomb. She's wearing it. There's a pause on Alex's end. She's attacked you, didn't she? Then she's hostile. Shoot her and defuse the bomb. This isn't the first time I've seen her. I think she's real. What are you talking about? To my right, fake seal of flickers in a cage. A poorly constructed hologram wearing a pale pink dress that washes out her vacillating face. The, programmer, the programmers of the simulation have tech to make Sila appear real. Why would they choose to protect a weak, almost blurred image of Sila, yet put small, un unnecessary details on the image of the girl I'm facing? Even with the dim lighting in the lantern room, I see her. She has a light brown beauty mark at the bridge of her nose, thin lips and empty eyes. Is it a trick? Is she the hostage? Lee J1, Alex yells from the calm. I'm coming up. If you're still alive, I'm going to kill you. I can't concentrate with Alex shouting my ear, so I take out my earpiece. It's attached to a cord that wraps around my neck. And I have to duck my head to take it off. When I lift my head, the girl is no longer empty-handed. She holds a gun aimed at my chest.
Okay. Uh, so we'll finish up with what we're reading next. I have I know absolutely nothing about this book. This is a book that you bought recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called One Italian Summer by Rebecca Searle. I don't know if I'm saying her last name right. Um, it's a romance or realistic. It says realistic on it. It is realistic. Okay, so it's not a romance. There may be romance in it, but that is not the focus. Okay, so I read a romance by her mm-hmm. called In Five Years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know every book that I've read in my entire life, but I think there's a good chance that that book that I read last year was the first romance novel that I ever read. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I liked it. Yeah. And so I saw that you had bought this one by the same author, and I said, I'll give it a go. I may be misspeaking and getting it twisted with another book, but I believe that it's about this this girl whose mother passes away, and I think they had a, a, a trip to Italy planned okay, or something of that so sort. So does she go, maybe? I think she goes. There's a connection to her mother in a, in a trip, and there's this okay. the connection between them. That Yeah, so there there may be romance that happens within that. But that's not the, but that's it's not not a romance the, re- the sure. motive, sure, sure, sure. I believe. Yeah, well, I'm interested in it. I mean, it'll be a big shift from what I just read, yeah. which is fine. It looks good. Um, but yeah, that's one Italian summer that I'll be checking out. Mm-hmm. Well, I am reading a book that I actually bought my first year in the library from, it was a recommendation from a teacher friend of mine. Um, and it's called Neanderthal opens the door to the universe by Preston Norton. And it is like part of the synopsis kind of makes me laugh. It's about kids at a school called happy Valley high school. And I'm like, I, it's just hard to read sometimes. Like, what am I getting myself into? You know, um, but it's a student who, in his words, is a huge loser, and another student who has a near death experience and comes back with like this list of things to make their school better. And he enlists Cliff, the main character, the one who thinks he's a loser, to um, help him do those things. Okay. And so there's some kind of turn. Um, where Cliff is more involved than he realizes that I don't know about yet, but high school There's got to be a conflict somewhere. There's got to be a conflict somewhere. So um, it looks interesting, and I'm excited to see why why my teacher friend liked it so much. Very cool. Right now it's time for us to check out. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at BDP underscore library and share us with a friend. Don't forget to check back with us every other Wednesday for the next episode of Overdue. Make time to read. Thanks for listening. Edited, sponsored, and produced by BDP Library at White House High School in White House, Tennessee. Check us out on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at BDP underscore library.